Habakkuk chapter 3 tonight. After 10 weeks, well, more weeks, we took a couple of breaks for Thanksgiving and stuff, but after 10 messages, we're reaching the end of the book of Habakkuk. And uh, it's been such a, an interesting book that uh, written so long ago, but parallels so well um, some of our modern problems, doesn't it? The problem of sin, <laughs> not just societal sin, but because he was struggling with the sin, you know, of the Gentiles that were coming in to destroy Israel, but also the sins of the covenant people of God. And we see that today, don't we? There's a lot of sin going on among the church, uh, especially in America. We see a lot of compromise, a lot of uh, open acceptance of, of sin uh, in the church, celebrated sometimes by denominational leaders. And uh, I think we're in, we see a lot of parallels to Habakkuk's time as we ourselves cry out for justice in the land. We cry out for God to do something. Uh, Habakkuk's prayer was, was, you know, God, bring justice to the land, but revive your people. Revive your people. And uh, I, I mentioned we did two messages on praying for revival, and I think we treat revival so frivolously in the church today. You know? and, and part of the problem of that is we don't think we need it, Right? I don't think we really believe we need it. I don't really don't think, I think we're so far removed from those days of revival that I don't think we believe it can happen. I think we have a lot of people within the church today, not speaking of our church specifically, but the church at large, that doesn't believe that what happened to the Great Awakening could happen today. That what happened to the 1904 Welsh Revival could happen today. That would happen all across this world. There's been multiple revivals of different lands, different places, different times. And God's done things where he's brought you know, people into the kingdom. And he's revived the church. And the church began to be soul winning and preaching and evangelizing and sharing the gospel and sending missionaries out. I believe that God can do that again. But he wants his people to seek it, yeah. to want it. The problem is we are so much today like the church of Laodicea, aren't we? We're, we went to Bakersfield yesterday. We went yesterday morning and came back yesterday evening. But it was very profitable. We got a lot done for eight hours. But I was listening to some uh, sermons on Revelation and it happened to be at the Laodicean church. I thought, wow, the parallels are amazing. I don't buy into the, 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 the notion that you know, each of those churches in Revelation represent different stages of church history. I, I don't think that's a viable interpretation. But when I look at the American church, there are parallels we can draw to Laodicea. Laodicea was poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And what do they think? We're rich, increase with good, in need of nothing. That's the American church, isn't it? We don't need those revivals. We're okay. Look how much money we have. Look at our mega churches. And it's true. Christians, professing Christians today, the, profess, the, 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 the public church today probably has more cash on hand than they've ever had since the time of Christ. And we're wasting it. We're wasting it, aren't we? We're wasting it on nonsense. I saw a church just the other day online. They had this Christmas program. We were talking about it, was it yesterday? 
they had string, they had flashing lights and smoke and flying angels and Santa Claus flying across on a sleigh. Cost tens of thousands of dollars to put on this play. I, I don't think a Christmas play is in and of itself a sin, but when people are dying and going to heaven, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars to put on a Christmas play? You've reached Laodicea. You're not going to get revival doing that. We're wasting so many resources today. We have more access to the Bible than we've ever had. I mean, it's on our phones for free, for goodness sakes. We have more access to the Bible, but we read it less than we ever have. We have more access to, to teaching. I mean, you can... You don't have to pay for a seminary education anymore. You can just go on YouTube and watch hours of lectures from seminaries. You can get free education. And we have so much knowledge of the Word of God floating around, and we're more confused and ignorant of the Word of God than ever before. So as I heard him teaching on Laodicea, I was like, man, that's us today. We don't even see our problem. We don't even see that there's something wrong. You have to forgive my uh, television references. I know Gloria doesn't always like them. There was a movie a long time ago. I won't say the name. But it had this knight, white knight, who was fighting this black knight. And you guys may know who I'm talking about. And he cuts off his limbs one by one. And the guy, well, I'll just say it's Monty Python. Search for the Holy Grail. He cuts off his arm, and the guy is like, oh, it's just a scratch. Cuts off his other arm, oh, it's just a flesh wound. Cuts off his leg, and he gets him down, it's just his torso on the ground. The guy's still, that's the American church. We're dying out there, and we're like, man, this is the best. I heard a pastor say just the other day, this is the best time for the church in history. I'm thinking, what church is he talking about? What's he talking about? We're so blind to our condition. Same thing's true in America, right? We're spending money left and right, and we're just borrowing it. We don't even have it. It's a joke. I mean, they make jokes about we're just spending ourselves into oblivion. We've lost all sense. They don't know what's a boy, what's a girl. People have their pronouns listed everywhere. And some people are pretending to be something they're not. The time has come, church, for people to cry out to God for justice and revival. Because like Laodicea, I think a lot of times the church in America is not what we think we are. We're poor and we're blind and we're naked. And what does Jesus say in that passage? He says, just ask of me. Come, come, come get eyes out that you, put, you may be able to see you. I stand at the door and knock and just open the door and sub with me. In other words, we go to Christ. That's where we need to go. We don't need more money. We need more of Christ. We don't need bigger churches or more programs. We need more of Christ. That's what we're missing. We have more money, more properties, more transportation, more technology than we've ever had, but we don't have Christ. That's the problem. Same thing in America. What's the problem in America? 
Well, sin. The problem is we have more technology, more ease, more comfort. I mean, even the poor people today on the streets have cell phones. Nobody goes without, without in America anymore. But we're so wicked and we're so destitute of godliness. And we're learning the important lesson that we don't need more comfort or more technology or a bigger GDP or even a better president. We need Christ. We need justice. We need righteousness. And so there's great parallels between our life today and Habakkuk. And as I got more into the book, I was just floored. I said, this could have been written today for the church now. Let's read the text real quick. We're finishing up Habakkuk 3. We'll start in verse 16. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field yield, shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on the stringed instruments. Amen. What a great ending. Let's do a short review. This book has been an emotional roller coaster, hasn't it? For the prophet, for us. On uh, your handouts, I have a, a little bit of a, a review of the book. So we'll kind of go over that before we get into our text. We saw first the prophet's distress over the wickedness of Israel. That was in chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4, we saw his distress over sin. He was distressed over sin, wasn't he? He's crying out. You guys remember that message? Oh Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're sitting there and you're letting wickedness go on. But he wasn't, was he? God is patient, not immoral. He wasn't allowing wickedness. He was giving men... <clears throat> Space to repent. He was letting them sin to their fullest. Remember, we have two other times in the Bible this comes up, right? When he sends Egypt, Israel into Egypt, into the promised land. Why? Because he says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, they haven't sinned to the point of meriting judgment. So God is a just and a holy God. Though he wasn't turning a blind eye to the Amorites, he said... When their time comes, their time will come. And then we see very similar language in the New Testament when Jesus pronounces judgment on first century Israel. And he says, you're filling up the measure of your fathers. They killed the prophets, but you're going to fill that up. And he said, all the blood shed on the earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, all of that's going to come on this generation. 
God is patient with sinners. You realize Abel died in Genesis chapter 4? And God was patient. And God waited until Matthew 23. And then he says, all the blood shed beginning at Abel onward, it's coming on this generation. In other words, God's not turning a blind eye to sin, but he's patient with sinners. But at some point, that patience wears out, doesn't it? At some point, the judgment of God falls on people. We see it with Sodom and Gomorrah, don't we? The king of Sodom, it doesn't look too bad in Genesis 14. He's actually kind of aligning himself with Abraham. He's blessed by being aligned with Abraham. And a couple, a couple chapters later, what happens? Fire and brimstone rains down Sodom and Gomorrah. He was patient with sinners. So we saw his distress over sin. There is a lack of distress over sin today. You and I need to be distressed at the sins of our nation. While we did this study, from the time we started to tonight, our nation, our state, put as a right in our constitution the right to murder children. We should cry out for justice for those children. Tears should have been shed for the evil of our land. And then just the other day, our nation passed a law codifying in federal law pretend marriage, gay marriage. We're in a sinful place, people. We're in a sinful land. We pretend that women are men and men are women and we punish those who don't do it. We ostracize, we criticize, we cancel them if they don't go along with the program. We should be crying out for justice. That should be part of our prayer to God every day. Bring justice to the land. Bring judgment to sinners. The problem with the church today is we're not moved by the sins of our culture. Some churches have made uh, friends with it. I promise you, spend an hour driving around certain parts of Los Angeles County, you're going to find dozens of churches with rainbow flags hanging outside. It's an abomination to the Lord. But it was even worse. The churches who would preach against it or be against it, I won't say preach against it, they're against it, but they're quiet about it. They don't stand against it. They don't oppose it. They don't call it out from the pulpit. They're compromisers just as much as the church with the rainbow flag. We're called to stand against the evil of the culture. That's what Habakkuk was doing. We saw the Lord pronounce judgment on Israel, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. God assured Habakkuk, judgment's coming. <laughs> Don't worry. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, we saw Habakkuk disapprove of God's judgment. Disapprove because he thought God was being overly harsh. He thought the Gentiles that were coming were going to wipe out God's inheritance. Then we saw in chapter 2, God's response to Habakkuk's concerns. 
His heritage would be preserved. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. God said, I'm not going to destroy my people. I'm going to punish them. I'm going to chastise them. And then I'm going to return them to the land. We saw the judgment that was coming on this invading nation. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. God laid out to Habakkuk. He said, not, not only am I bringing this nation in to judge Israel, but I'm going to punish them as well. They're going to pay for their sins as well. Chapter 3, we saw the prophet's prayer in the form of a song to the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 was his prayer for revival. What a prayer it was. I still think about that. The words of Habakkuk. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. Habakkuk who cried out for justice against sin and then pled for mercy for his people. He says, Lord, revive us and show us mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? And he suffered the wrath of God in order to show us mercy, didn't he? In wrath, God remembered mercy. I love that. And he did it for Israel, too. He answered having his prayer. We saw that in the book of Ezra, when they returned to the land. What did Ezra say in his prayer? Lord, you've not, in Ezra chapter 9, you've not punished us as much as our sins deserve. In his wrath against their sin, he still showed mercy to them. By the way, that is our situation as well, isn't it? He has not punished us as much as our sin deserves. Thank the Lord. And Jesus took our punishment on the cross. I saw a great quote today on Facebook. I don't remember exactly word for word what it said. I can just look it up. It's right here on my phone. Give me a second. I don't want to misquote it and have someone tell me I misquoted it. That on the cross, God looked at Christ and saw you. Now he looks at you and he sees Christ. In wrath, remember mercy, right? That was a blessing today to see that. Then after the prayer for revival, we saw in verses 3 through 6, the prophecy of a second and ultimate exodus for God's people. He revealed to Habakkuk, he, said, he says, the, the, the first exodus was a type and a shadow. There is an eternal rescue coming for the people of God. There is an eternal crossing over. There is an eternal promised land. There is a final exodus coming for God's people. In verses 7 through 15, last week, we saw the vision of God as a warrior. It was two weeks ago now. We saw a vision of God as a warrior fighting for his people, trampling down their enemies, overcoming for them. And then tonight, we see Habakkuk's response is... Ultimately, his trust is in the Lord. It's in the Lord. He rests in the Lord. In this first verse, we look at in verse 16, we're going to see two different emotions by Habakkuk. Look at the first part of the verse. When I heard, my belly trembled, and my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, 
and I trembled in myself. What we see here is the proper response to a believer confronted with the power of a holy God. That's what we see here. Trembling and conviction should mark those who have come into presence of the holy God. God's judge, coming judgment brought fear, and rightly so. Listen, God's judgment should make us tremble, church. It should make us tremble. His judgment coming on this nation should make us tremble. Not, not fear. We don't fear God's judgment. We rest like Habakkuk does. But God's judgment is coming on this nation. And we should be fearful of that. God's judgment is coming on sinners. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we evangelize. That's why we go to the park. That's why we go to the abortion clinic. That's why we go to sports events and we go to, to Mexico next month. We're going to the, the, the football championships. That's why Leo went down to Las Vegas to preach the gospel because people are perishing. God's judgment is coming. I'm concerned at how many Christians aren't moved by that. They're indifferent to that. I know people who claim to be Christians who have never, I mean never, shared the gospel with somebody else. That's not the proper response. Job 42, 1 through 6. We've been talking about this a lot. Anybody want to read Job 42, 1 through 6? I referenced it. Jason's got it. We'll get you the microphone. I referenced it a lot, but I want us to read through it. This is Job's response after God appeared to him in the whirlwind. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst everything that no thought can be withholding from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things to wonder for me, which I do not. Here I beseech thee, I will speak, I will demand of thee and declare of thee. Declare thou unto me, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes see thee. verse 6. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There we go. That's, that's the main one I want you guys to see, the main part of that right there. After Job starts off so good, then what does he begin to do throughout the book? Puff himself up, right? Defend himself to God. God's done me wrong. I've done nothing. God's just, he's, he's, he's a big meanie. Then God appears to him. We didn't read through all those. I'd love to sit and just read through all those chapters sometime. And God says, who is this? I forget the words he's exactly. Who is this who, who darkens counsel without knowledge? Others? Who is this who's talking and has no idea what he's talking about? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I did this? Can you do what I can do? And when Job realized he was in the presence of a holy and a just God, what did he do? Detested himself. 
I repent in dust and ashes. I am nothing. Same thing we see from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, right? He has the vision of Christ exalted on his throne in the temple. What does Isaiah say? I shouldn't even be here. I'm unclean. My people are unclean. I shouldn't be here. And then the angel purifies him with the coal. But what did he do? He trembled. The reason that Christians today aren't moved over the sins of our nation, the sins of the church, is because they've never trembled in the presence of the holiness of God. That's why. They've never been in the presence of God. There's probably, I hate to say it, a lot of unconverted people filling our churches in America today who have never met God, never seen his holiness, never loved his justice, and so they don't tremble. Now, those of us who have been in the presence of God, we tremble, don't we? We see the sins of our nation and we tremble. And we weep because we love the holiness of God. Habakkuk, when he saw the judgment that God was bringing, when he saw the promise of the eternal exodus, when, he, when, when God went over that, what, the things he was doing and fighting for his people and trampling down their enemies, Habakkuk trembled inside. This is a mighty God. I said this two weeks ago when I taught in Habakkuk. We claim to have experienced the power of God today, but there is little trembling. We claim to follow an all-powerful God, and we are ironically powerless. Nobody trembles anymore when we come, do they? No one trembles at the miracles of our God. No one falls down before us and says, what must I do to be saved? Say, Pastor, God doesn't work miracles anymore. You got the wrong God. Miracles, our God is, he's a miraculous God. He's supernatural. That's what he does. And he's done it so many times in the past. But we're unmoved, aren't we? We don't tremble because we haven't seen the holiness of God. Corey Tenboom, she trembled at the holiness of God because she saw the utter depravity of man, didn't she? What a place. German concentration camp. What a place to see the darkness of the human soul. You know when God got her heart? You know when God really... You, you read her accounts, she'll tell you openly, I wasn't a spiritual person I went in there. My sister was. But she began to tremble before a holy God when she saw the darkness of the human soul in light of the holiness of God. Church, we need to tremble before God. We need to seek his power. You realize that God can do anything, right? I want, us to, I want us to grab a hold of this. God can do anything. Our state's too far gone. Really? 
Because the Romans crucified Jesus and within a few hundred years, they were legalizing Christianity. Do you think anybody at the cross that day would have ever thought that Rome would become Christian? I don't think so. Do you think when the disciples were hiding after the crucifixion for fear of the Jews, they could say, you know, in a couple thousand years, people will be sitting around in America talking about a post-Christian world. No. They had no idea what God could do. God can bring this entire nation to repentance. He can bring our state to repentance. He can bring our church to repentance. But we need to tremble before a holy God. The last part of verse 16 says, he says, I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. You know what made the, the prophet tremble? Not just the holiness of God, but the mercy of God. He saw what God was going to do. He says, I trembled that I could rest in the day of trouble. I would have peace in the day of trouble. God would show mercy to me in the day of trouble. The prophet can rest knowing that God will direct his troops. Nothing is outside of God's control here. You guys realize that when this actually happened, right? When the temple was destroyed and the Jews were carried off to Babylon, God had not lost control of the situation. You realize that when Daniel and his three friends ended up at the king's court, God had not lost control of the situation. You do realize when Daniel got thrown in the lion's den, God had not lost control of the situation. You realize that when Jesus was on the cross, suffering what appeared to his enemies to be his ultimate defeat, God had not lost control of the situation. And though our nation looks wicked, and though our state looks dark, and though our church looks weak and apathetic, God has not lost control of the situation. We cry for justice, but we don't panic. We trust God. He will judge the wicked. He will revive his people. He will show mercy to whom he will. He'll harden whom he will. But we can rest. God has not lost control. You know when they legalized gay marriage, God had not lost control? You're saying God was for it. No. I'm saying he hadn't lost control. When they, on election day, voted to put abortion into our Constitution, you know God hadn't lost control? Nope, not one bit. That should make us tremble because his judgment is coming. We have a lesson here. With all the evil in our society, God is in complete control. When judgment falls on a nation, and it's already falling on us, by the way, God is in complete control. We don't need to fear. We can rest. Nothing, nothing is out of control. I love that. 
was in my office earlier watching the news. I hate watching the news. I looked for all the bad stories. All the real, I mean, all the government corruption, all the war, all the scandals. And I was watching that and reading this and thinking, God has not lost control. Understand, I have a, an aunt who's a professing Christian. I don't, I don't believe it, but she's a professing Christian. Who has several times in the last 15 years ended up in the hospital because she's stressed over the conditions of politics. You know, I haven't been in the last 15 years admitted to the hospital over anxiety over politics. You know why? Because God is in complete control. Nothing, nothing is outside of his control. Now, Habakkuk is not trying to think himself into better realities. That's not what he's doing. He's not trying to be a the power of positive thinking. He's simply resting in the truth of the sovereignty of God. Verse 17, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. This is a pretty bleak picture. Like in, in, in this day and age, right? Like for us, it's not, I don't have any flocks or herds or cattle or trees. But in this day and age, he's picturing here complete economic collapse. That's what he's saying. Though the economy collapses and there's food shortages and there's no money and there's no way to get money and we're destitute and poor, who cares? God is in complete control. That's why politicians don't scare me when they start running for office. If he gets in or if they get in, there's going to be food shortage. I'm not worried about that. God's in complete control. Complete economic collapse. No food, no figs, no fruit, no livestock, which is not only food, but also a means of wealth. The prophet is making a major statement of ruin, which would probably terrify us in comfortable America, wouldn't it? Admit it. You guys, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm going to raise my hand first. No. We're all a little terrified of complete economic collapse, aren't we? We're all terrified. We've seen the pictures from the Great Depression, haven't we? We've seen those, the food shortage. We've seen all those pictures. We have, at least in my time, always had plenty. I was born in the early 1980s. I missed the Great Depression. I haven't missed the gas shortages of the 70s. I've never had to wait in line for gas. We've always had plenty. I missed the food rationing. I missed the food lines. What if we ran out of food? What if we ran out of money? What if a nation drops bombs on us? God's in complete control. First of all, we would deserve it. Right? We would deserve it. But do you believe that he's in complete control? If you, if you do, then you won't be driven by fear. You won't be driven by fear. You won't be gripped by fear. 
You realize, Christian, if you're saved, there is nothing to fear. Neither in earth nor in hell. Nothing. God is in complete control. This is why Christians need to stop compromising biblical principles in order to support wicked candidates for office in the hopes that they'll bring economic prosperity. We do that, you know. We compromise our biblical principles to elect politicians because they're going to make us rich. Listen. Solomon made silver like or stones like silver, silver like stones in Jerusalem. Silver like stones, it says. Have you guys ever seen Jerusalem? There's a lot of stone. It's all stones. He made them wealthy. We were talking one time, I think it was uh, Max's daughter. I'm going to blame Kirsten. I think we were talking about this back in, I think in March. Why didn't anybody, when Solomon started going the way he was going, why didn't anyone stop him? You know the answer? He made them rich. They didn't care. They didn't care. Stop compromising biblical values for pragmatism because God is in control. It never works for us, does it? We've done it for decades now. We're going more and more wicked. The wealth we do gain is frittered away in wasteful government corruption or failed policies. So we, we compromise our principles to elect somebody because he's going to make us wealthy and then that wealth within four or eight or ten years is gone and we're broke again. And we're going to do the same cycle over again. Meanwhile, we're growing more and more and more wicked. You realize when I was a kid, there was at least a group called the Moral Majority. Now we have churches flying rainbow flags. Do you see where we've slid in the last 40 years? Pragmatism hasn't saved us. It hasn't saved us. Economic wealth is not a sign of the blessing of God. Godless moralism and conservatism does not exalt a nation. Righteousness does. Proverbs 14.34. Who wants to read that verse for me? Leo? No? He knows it. He knows it. All right. Righteousness exalts a nation. I know I've been delving into politics a lot lately, but it has to be said. The Republican Party does not exalt a nation. You realize in my 41 years, we've had more Republican president, like time-wise, than Democrats. And we're broke and we're wicked. Righteousness exalts a nation. We have to love God, yes. not money. This is not a campaign speech for Joe Biden. He's wicked too. Yeah. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. How do we get revival? Stop tolerating sin for financial gain. Let's start, let's start there. Who cares about the stock market? It doesn't exalt a nation. Righteousness does. We need to be preaching righteousness. We need to be living righteously. We need to be exalting righteousness.
But what happens if we lose everything? Before we answer that, let me just say, we vote too often for economic success and not for righteousness. As long as we blame the current president or the other party, we'll never learn. Let's not blame Joe Biden for bad policies. Let's blame Christians for decades of compromise. Let's start there. Let's start with us. You know what? He is a judgment on this nation because we tolerated sin for too long. We need revival and repentance or more judgment will come. People who can't admit they're wrong never change. So back to the question, what, what if the worst happens? What if, as verse 17 pictures here, complete economic collapse happens? Then what? Do we panic? Do we trust ourselves? Do we give up our principles? Sorry, Gloria, let me use Hollywood one more time. I'm a major Trek nerd. This is applicable, by the way. There's a Star Trek series called Star Trek Voyager. Anybody ever heard it? Anybody ever watch it? Nobody? You guys are all healing. One saved man back there. Amen. <laughs> I'll see you in heaven, brother. So you guys know Star Trek, right? They're spacefaring people. And this one, they get, they get stranded 75 years from Earth. And the temptation comes to the crew of the ship to compromise their principles, to do bad things, to unite with bad people, to help them get home faster. And throughout the series, the captain is a stalwart. Our principles define us. If we lose them, we lose who we are. We don't compromise our principles. Church, our principles define us as Christians. If we lose them, we lose ourselves. Don't compromise. But what if, what if everything falls, then it all fails? Well, what do we need? Not my concern. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What things? What you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall put on. He'll take care of that. He's not lost control. But don't compromise with sin because you're worried about the future. So let's start back at 17, go back to 18 again. Although the fig tree fail, or although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, complete collapse. Then he goes on to verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That verse, verse 18, is not a standalone verse. It's not just Habakkuk going, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. That's Habakkuk saying, if everything else falls apart, I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord. That's what he's saying. I'm still going to worship him. I'm still going to praise him. I'm still going to joy and rejoice in the God of my salvation. 
Verse 18 by itself is glorious, isn't it? But verse 18 to 17 is magnificent, isn't it? I don't care if I have nothing left. I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. You can hear and feel the confidence that he feels. If food is scarce and money runs out, I'm going to trust the Lord. Too many people in the American church claim to love God for all the good things he does for them. But what happens when those things stop coming? What happens when the bad things happen? I'll tell you what they do. They deconstruct. I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm deconstructing. I don't believe in God anymore. They were there for the blessings. But the Calvary Road is not all blessings. You heard me say it. You cannot follow the suffering Savior without suffering. You cannot bear the cross without crucifixion. Their profession of faith implodes. So many people who deconvert their faith, when I say deconvert, I mean, supposedly deconvert, right? It's not possible to truly deconvert. If you're saved, you're saved. You're going to bear fruit, you're going to walk in righteousness. If you're deconstructing your faith, it means you never had faith in the first place. But those who claim to deconvert, they do so for such silly reasons, don't they? How could God do this to me? As if God owes us something. I believed in God until this happened. How does that happening change whether or not he exists? Oh, oh, you liked him when he did stuff for you. Well, something bad happened. Now I'm just going to cast him off. I can't believe in God because there's too many hypocrites. That one gets me. That one gets me. We have a Facebook friend that is going through that right now. So many hypocrites and bad people in the church, and I'm not going there anymore. He still goes to Walmart. Bet there's a couple there. Still goes to work, but there's a couple there. It's not about the hypocrites. It's about them loving their sin. That's what it's about. So what's behind deconstruction? Everyone's different. No, they're all the same. Sin. They love sin more than they love God. That's the difference. That's not Habakkuk, though. Habakkuk's like, if I'm laying the dust of the ruins of my, of, of my, of my life, I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Somebody want to read Daniel 3, 16 through 18? While you're, while we're debating on who's going to read it, and maybe Amy can read it. I don't know. I want to read it. Daniel three is a great chapter. Do we have any volunteers? Trisha's going to read it. Before she does, this is that chapter where he builds a giant statue and calls for everyone to worship it, to worship him in essence. So, verses sixteen through eighteen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. 
There it is, right there. That's what, what do they say? We're not careful to answer you. We're straightforward. We're not going to bow. We're not going to worship. We're not going to compromise. Our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace. And even if he doesn't, basically they're saying, we're going to rejoice in the God of our salvation. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is so bad, we're not even going to pretend to pick up a piece of paper off the ground. We're just not going to do it. We're going to stand here and rejoice in the God of our salvation. My heart breaks when we think about churches that closed just a couple of years ago. That bowed to that altar, didn't they? Churches that said, oh, they're going to sue us if we don't close. They were facing a fiery furnace. And listen, there was good pastors. There was good churches that did what was right. But there's so many more that didn't. So many more that compromised. That was a Daniel 3 moment, by the way. When the government said, hey, close your doors. Bow to my wishes. It took bold men that day to say, no, we're not going to bow. Even if you sue us, even if you take our property from us, even if you put us in prison, and in Canada, I know they put a couple in prison. It doesn't matter. We're still not going to do it, and we're still going to rejoice in the God of our salvation. Habakkuk is aware that God, that the God of heaven is not diminished because man faces difficult times. Sometimes we ask, if God is so powerful, why am I going through a hard time? The prophet knew that was the wrong question and the wrong attitude. Instead, we, like Habakkuk, should say, I know God is strong and mighty. If we lose everything, we'll praise him and rejoice in him still. Job 2, 9 and 10. I'll read this one. I know we're running late. Job if I can find Job, I think he's in the Old Testament. Job 2, 9 and 10. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speak. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this Job, did not Job sin with his lips. That's the right perspective. What Job is saying there, though the olive fail and the tree not bear fruit and the cattle not produce. And he's saying the same thing Habakkuk saying, just in a different time. He was wealthy. He lost everything. And his wife's like, that's it, just turn on God. He's like, wait a minute. We received all that from God. Can he not do what he's going to do? As I said, Habakkuk wasn't trying to harness the power of positive thinking. He wasn't thinking himself into better realities. He was submitting himself to God and saying, whatever reality you lay before me, I'm going to praise you in it. I'm already in Job. So Job 13. I'll read you a verse there. I love this verse. Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain my own ways before him. Job said, even if God were to kill me, 
Even if he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Christian, we've seen so much more of the power and majesty of God than Job ever saw in his life. We have every reason to rest and to trust in the power and sovereignty of God. But but if we don't compromise, they're going to take away our homes. They're going to take away our church. They're going to put us in jail. They're going to take away all of our money. Our economy is going to collapse. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I'm not in favor of tattoos, but if I was, that should be on the arm of every Christian in the world to remind ourselves, though he slay me, though he take everything from me, I deserve nothing in the first place. I'm still going to praise him. You realize that God is worthy of our praise, not because of what he does, but because of who he is, right? We understand that. We don't, we do praise God. We, we thank God for the blessings that he gives us, right? But our praise, our worship does not flow from our blessings. They flow from realizing who God is. And if he gave us nothing, he's worthy of our praise. You realize that if he didn't save anybody, if he never died on the cross, if he just created us, and cast us into hell, he would be just for doing so. And he would rightfully deserve our worship before we were thrown in. Because of who he is. Do you know why Christians can't praise God in bad times? Do you know why Christians compromise their principles to try to save themselves and preserve their, their way of life? Because they have not gotten a glimpse of who God truly is. We need to stop asking why so much. I'll be brutally honest with you. God is not required to tell us. You're free to ask. People walk away from God. He took away my wife. He took away my husband. He took away my mother or my father. And I don't, I don't know what, why he would do that. He doesn't have to tell you why. He doesn't have to tell you. But Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Though he slay my wife, yet will I trust in him. Though he slay my mother, so do I trust in him. If he slays my father, I will trust in him. If he slays my sister, I will trust in him. If he takes my life, I plan to be on the dying cancer bed one day going, I'm still praising him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Yet will I rejoice in the God of my salvation. Because he's worth it. In and of himself. Verse 19, and we'll finish up. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places. To the chief singer on my stringed instruments. The Lord is his strength. The Lord should be the strength of all of his people. Having didn't trust in figs or fruit trees or cattle, we shouldn't trust in our jobs our 401ks, our bank balance, our house, our car, our position, or anything else. Our strength should be in Christ. 
In the day of adversity, he's all we're going to have. Make sure he's all that you need. In the moment of great trial or great loss, he's the only one who can truly draw near to us. He's the only one who can truly say, I've experienced what you're experiencing, and I care. I care. Christ draws near to the brokenhearted. I've been there. I know. Make Christ your strength. Don't tremble at circumstances. Find strength in Christ. The part about making his feet like hind's feet is a great finish. Have you ever seen a deer run up a mountainside? I used to live in the mountains years ago. I worked at a resort. And uh, you'd see deer running in the mountainside. And they never tripped, never fell. Holes, obstacles, trees, bushes, didn't matter. That's what God does for his people. That's what he does for us. He makes our feet not stumble, not fall. He holds us up. We move through life without faltering or failing when Christ is our strength. Obstacles may come, and yet we move effortlessly through them. So, summary of the book. God's people should cry for justice. God sees and will punish injustice. God will punish all people who have sinned, Jew or Gentile. God is no respecter of persons. He said, I'm going to level Jerusalem, and then I'm going to level the Assyrians. I think in 70 AD, when Titus from Rome laid waste to the temple in Jerusalem for the last time, it was the ultimate statement that God is no respecter of persons. His people break covenant, they get punished too. So what does that mean for me, Pastor? It means don't get off in sin. Ah, oh, I'm saved, I'm okay, He's, I won't, I'll be okay, I, I'm a Christian. He's going to punish sin. Not in the same way. He doesn't eternally punish his children. But he does chastise. He does discipline. God will not turn a blind eye to sin. The church in America needs to mark it down. He's as angry with us as he is with Washington or New York or Hollywood. We should cry out for revival. We should be praying and asking God to renew his church. God will hear and answer a humble cry for help. His ears are open to the humble. God has brought new and eternal deliverance for his people. We have passed through the Red Sea, spiritually speaking. He has delivered us once and for all from our sins. God is a warrior who fights for his people. Our battle is not in the physical realm, church. It's in the spiritual realm. And God fights our battles. Don't fight in the flesh. Fight in the spirit. And then make God your strength. Trust him regardless of the circumstances. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That, I think, perfectly sums up the book of Habakkuk. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this evening. For this great book. I, I've, I've been so so challenged studying through this book, so moved by my own 
What's the word I'm looking for? I guess apathy. My own lack of concern for the holiness of God, for the sins of people, for the sins in my own heart. All but your own holy God. Thank you for who you are. I don't say that enough. Thank you for who you are. Conform me more to the image of your son. That I can reflect your glory and your righteousness in my own life. Lord, revive your church. Revive your people. Do mighty works among us, Lord. Save sinners. Heal the sick. Keep our church, Lord. We have a wonderful church. So united. No cliques. No no, no groups. Everyone loves everyone. Lord, keep us that way. Lord, we want to please you. Help us to do that. We want to love you. Help us to love you. We're such imperfect people. But you're a perfect God. You can help us to love perfectly. Help us to be a light to the lost. Help us remind our culture that judgment is coming. God will not tolerate sin forever. Repent. And I thank you that even in your wrath, you remember mercy. You were angry with my sin at one time. But you put that wrath upon your son. And for me, you remembered mercy. We ask you to remember it again, Lord. For Sam, for Art's parents, for Tetsuo's mom, Leo's kids, and all the others I can't think of right now who need you. Remember mercy, Lord, and save them. But if you don't, we're going to praise you. Heal the sick, Lord, but if you don't, we're going to praise you. Save our nation, Lord, but if you don't, we're going to praise you. Though you slay us, yet will we trust in you. Dismiss us now with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.